0: I have to go read the book uh, or the the story about Jonah again. I just got so intrigued with that. But uh, it's good uh, to be with you uh, again this morning as we continue our study on prayer. And if you've been with us this summer, we've looked at conversations in Scripture between God and his people and how these conversations have played out. And we've said that it's okay to wrestle with God It's okay to ask questions of God and to grapple with God about the things in our lives. And sometimes this wrestling makes us realize things about ourselves, times when we've fallen short and need God's mercy and grace. And this morning, we want to look at a prayer penned by King David when he became acutely aware that sin had polluted his life and had left him battered and bruised. So I don't know about you, but for me, confession for the times in my life when I've sinned is hard. I'm embarrassed, ashamed when I reflect upon the way that I've thought, the way that I've spoken to someone in my own selfish tendencies. Frederick Buechner says it this way, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you and God, and when you confess them, they become the bridge. True confession is where we own personal responsibility for our words, our behavior without excuse and without shifting the blame. It's where we admit to God where we have fallen short. But if we look closely, confessing activates God's grace on this earth. Grace is a characteristic of God when we place our trust in His goodness. What I was bad when I what I did was bad, but I confess because God's grace is greater than my sin. Now I have a little bit of a confession this morning. I am not a perfect man. And much to my chagrin, I found this out after I got married. (laughs) And over the course of our marriage, Esther, my wife in love, has pointed out deficiencies in me. Maybe it was my tone of voice or the fact that I forgot to do something I promised. Or maybe it was her questioning my judgment on the purchase of a new laptop. Regardless of what her ridiculous reasoning might have been, I defend myself even though I know I'm wrong. I hold on to my righteousness, put up walls of defense, but I know deep down in my heart that something is not right. Deep down in my subconscious, I know that at the end of our conversation, I'll end up saying, honey, I'm sorry." And marriage requires seeking forgiveness and in my case a lot but the same is true but to even a greater degree regarding our relationship with God. Psalm 51 brings together the painful reality and depth of sin and the wonder of divine mercy. It comes to us in the form of a lament and some have called it the martyr's prayer. Protestant reformer Victor Striegel says it this way, This psalm is the brightest gem of the whole book and contains instructions so large and doctrines so precious that the tongues of angels could not do justice to its full development. And in this story, King David is a desperate man in the fight of his life. He's beaten, he's broken, he's lost and ruined by what he had done. And if I were to ask you this morning, what was David's greatest victory? I think many of us would say David's greatest victory was when he slayed the giant. His victory was when he beat Goliath. But some theologians have said that Psalm 51 is David's greatest victory. This victory that was given to him by a merciful God at the depths of his heart over his sin and past failures. For many of us, the story is familiar. The setting is Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And the Israelites are off at war. And David really should have been with them, but he's home. He's in the palace. And he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop, Bathsheba. And he calls for her. He commits adultery with her, and she becomes pregnant. And then to cover it up, he has her husband, Uriah the Hittite, one of his best and most loyal soldiers, he has him killed on the battlefield. And for at least nine months, David has a quiet conscience. And in the second uh, chapter of Samuel, chapter 12, God forces the issue and Nathan the prophet confronts him. And because of that confrontation, this psalm of repentance is written by David. Sinclair Ferguson describes this psalm as the guiding star. It's a guiding star to understanding the gospel. It's a guiding star to understanding our great sin, and with our great sin comes an even greater Savior. So if you're here this morning and your sin has bruised you, if you're here and you have a past, if you're here and you're dealing with guilt and shame, David's prayer is for you. And with that as our background, let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that, so that as Scripture is read and your word proclaimed, we hear with joy what you want to say to us today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Listen now to the reading of God's word. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow." Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper, Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 51 is a picture of David's shattered and hiding heart. And we see a David that's horrified by sin, but we also see a man that looks forward with hope, hope because of his past relationship with God, a God that is faithful and merciful to him. And on the basic level, confession begins the process of repentance. Confession is about admitting and telling the truth. We can't have repentance without confession. And David describes his grave error in the first few sentences with three distinct words transgressions, iniquity, and sin. He doesn't focus on anything specific, but it's a comprehensive description of the word sin. And he also uses the first person singular. In the first four verses alone, he says, My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And in verse four, he says, I sinned and have done evil in your sight. And you don't have to be a theologian to understand what David is referring to in the first few verses. He sees that by the tone, David owns it. This is personal ownership of sin. He doesn't have any excuses. He doesn't gloss over it. He doesn't say I had a bad day. If only I had been with my men in battle. Or he doesn't say, you know, it's, not my fault she shouldn't have been bathing on that rooftop david owns his sin this is personal ownership of sin that we too need to confess when we talk to god and notice his acknowledgement in verse four against you and you only i have sinned so david's not saying that he didn't sin against uriah and that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or the nation of israel because he did If we only think of sin in the horizontal dimension, we're kidding ourselves. What David is saying here is that the root sin, the sin beneath all of the other sins, is a vertical sin against the character of God. David confesses that he has the blood of Uriah on his hands. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. David's saying, I'm false and full of sin. I'm not who I want to be and I'm not how I need to be. I need your mercy and I need it in a deep, deep way, oh God. In verse five, he says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So in other words, he's saying, I know where this came from. He's not blaming his mother, but he's saying, this is not a random act. This is not a fluke. It's not out of left field. But the explanation is I sin because I'm a sinner. There's a sinful nature in all of us that naturally twists our hearts and separates us from God. And so David is praying, I need grace in the deepest places, in the farthest corners of my heart, because there's a place inside of me that's hidden. There's a place that's pervasively twisted. I have a spiritual sickness that I cannot fix myself. I need you, God, to go there, I need your mercy. You see, this is the first and most challenging step to confess what is true, to see ourselves clearly, to see ourselves as God sees us, to own it, to admit it when we are, when we are wrong, that we are needy and that we are spiritually broken and bankrupt. David has acute understanding of the severity of his sins. In verse three, he says, my sin is always before me. No less than 18 times in this prayer, David begs and pleads with God, have mercy on me, purge me, wash me, cleanse me, create in me, renew in me, uphold me, sustain me, deliver me. This is a man at the end of his rope. This is the man that has a posture of need. I remember growing up, my father would help me work through life. And on the topics with economic implications, he would ask me, Roland, is this something you want or is this something you need? And wants are those things a person desires or likes to have, but not necessary for survival. I want a new car. I want a bigger house. And I even want a brand new laptop. But do I really need it? Do I need it in order to survive? And there are times in the Christian life when we say we want a relationship with Christ. But maybe a better question is, do we need a relationship with Christ? And if we were to stop and ask ourselves this morning, do we have a posture of need? Do we see that we are needy and broken and bankrupt and bruised our confession should look something like david's confession requires that we see ourselves as we really are and bold confession leads to repentance some have translated the word repentance as to turn around a hundred and eighty degree change in the direction of our behavior that's a good picture But I like the Aramaic Aramaic definition a little better because it defines repentance as returning home. When Jesus restores the original image of God within us, we become new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed and all things have become new. We become the original creation that God made us out to be. And in essence, we return home. A Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, explained it this way. Repentance is the sight of sin, the sorrows for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and turning from sin. It's a little bit easier to remember, and I don't know about you, but it helped me out a little bit. The Shorter Catechism says it this way, that it's a saving grace. It's something that we do not create or make happen or cultivate on our own. It's a free gift given to us by God. It is grace that allows us to recognize, confess, look in the mirror and see ourselves for who we really are and where should we turn. The catechism goes on to say, turn from its sin to God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. You see, David's at his wit's end and he has nowhere to go. Have you ever been at your wit's end at the end of your rope? What did you do? Did you try to fix it? Or did you do what David did? David turned from his sin and clung to God for dear life. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David turns and clings to God's steadfast love for his people. The word that best describes this kind of love is a word that we've used before here. It's the word hesed. God's unstoppable, always pursuing never-ending love of his people. And this means that once God sets his love on you, he will never, ever, ever stop loving you. It's a covenant of loyalty, a covenant of faithfulness. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, says it this way about verse one. He says, this opening plea in verse one is the language of one who has no claim to the favor that he begs. In other words, David comes to the table with no bargaining chips. And the basis for the mercy that he begs for is not because he killed Goliath or his performance as a leader of Israel or that he possessed wisdom. But the basis for the mercy that David begs for is something that resides in the character of God. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love this is the returning home that David longs and begs for. David begs for this from God because he has nothing to give. There was no sin offering, no burn offering. There's nothing. The only thing that David has to offer is a broken and contrite heart. There's a print in my office that I look at frequently, and it was given to me by my son, and it means a lot to me, and it's a print of Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in this painting, the son is kneeling, he's lost, he's ruined, he's bald, and he's missing a shoe. He has the appearance of an outcast. And when he turns to his father, he returns home. And in the painting, the father is bent over, embracing his son, with the utmost fatherly care as the son has his head buried in his father's chest and I presume weeping uncontrollably. It's a powerful picture of repentance. The wayward son turns and goes home. And the same picture we see, this is the same picture we see in Psalm 51. The wayward King David has come home and cries out for the mercy of God. If you're exhausted from sin and long to be embraced like the prodigal, you must cling to Jesus. The one thing that we can not do this morning is to walk out committed to our own strategies for cleaning up our own mess, to try and fix our lives like David tried to fix his lives through his own power instead of clinging to the power of Almighty God. Friends, we must cling to Jesus. If you see in verses 7 through 12, Uh, real quickly, David's got something going on here. It's powerful. He turns to God and zeroes in on his heart. Take note of the flow of this prayer. It starts off with cleansing language and then shifts to restorative language. It's like he's given us a roadmap for repentance. In verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David knows that he needs an inner washing, a deep cleansing he's praying to God, asking him not just to tidy up his soul, but to act as a priest and sprinkle the blood of sacrifice to make him pure as snow. David realizes he cannot clean himself up. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away his sins and wipe his slate clean. And it's not just about removing guilt. David wants his past record obliterated. He craves a fresh start, to be to be truly clean before God. It's a powerful plea for forgiveness and transformation. And then comes this beautiful picture of restoration that he paints. In verse eight he says, let me hear joy and gladness. And in verse 12 he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David is pouring out his heart asking God to bring back the joy and gladness that he once had. David acknowledges that God has already done so much for him removing his guilt, wiping his slate clean, clothing him in righteousness and making him pure. But he longs to feel the joy and gladness again. It is the joy and gladness of being restored to God's presence. It's a beautiful and relatable prayer, isn't it? We all want to feel the deep joy and gladness that comes from knowing we are loved and accepted by God. Well, so what? What do we do with this? psalm. What do we do with this prayer by David? One of my favorite parts of the psalm is what David says he will do when he's restored. This is not just a psalm about reconciliation, but a story about David's walk with God. He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will return to you. In verse 14, deliver me and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In verse 15, Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. David's job was not complete after God restored him. Once he was back, he would take it upon himself to go to and help others come back just as he did. He would sing aloud the praises of the Lord God. And we all have a story to tell, don't we? Sometimes this is difficult because we fear exposure. And it's much easier for us to play our cards close to the vest. And I freely admit that I'm the last person that likes to share my struggles, my sorrows, my stories, and my sin with anyone. Don't ask me about my wounds or my weaknesses. Don't shine the spotlight on my mistakes or failures or the imperfections of my heart. Remember that David was quiet for at least nine months before God finally broke through to him. But once he broke through, God was merciful to him. He purged him, washed him whiter than snow. He created a clean heart. He renewed a right spirit with him. He he upheld him. He sustained him and delivered him. David has a story to tell and so do we. Maybe there's a friend or a neighbor or coworker that God brings into your life who can hear your story and say, well, if God was rich in mercy towards you, maybe God can be rich in mercy towards me. You know, if God cleaned that, if he washed you whiter than so, do you think maybe he could wash me? Do you think he could deep clean my heart and the mess that's in my life? True repentance leads to great evangelism. And we all have a story to tell. And it's easy for us to say this morning that our sins are not David's sins. I have not committed adultery, nor have I been involved in murder. But maybe our sin is still heavy. And maybe we long to be clean and we long to be whiter than snow. Maybe we're tired of hiding all of our stuff And our sin has left us flat and cold. And we have no joy. What do we do with that? We must keep our focus on Jesus. Take the pleas and the prayers of David in Psalm 51 and intersect it and connect it with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that David asked for in this Psalm, all of the mercy, cleansing, and deliverance he sought, David received. David received all of this because God took the burden from King David and gave it to a different king. God gave the burden of King David to King Jesus, the only one that could stand in the gap and fill the void for David, for you, and for me. When David's sin burden was shifted to Jesus, all of the weight of his sin was lifted. It's like a divine puzzle falling perfectly into place. Through King Jesus, God granted him the very thing that David longed for and so much more. It's a testament to the beautiful orchestration of God's plan and his boundless love for all of us. And sometimes we forget the complete picture of the gospel. God does not just stop at forgiveness. He delights in us. Imagine that, the God of the universe finding joy in you and in me. It's like a loving father welcoming back his prodigal son with open arms. No matter where we are in our Christian walk, has it been a long time? Has it been a long time since you have experienced the joy and reward of a deep relationship with Jesus? Has it been a long time since you have genuinely confessed your life to God as David confessed? If it has... It's time to come home and cling to the love and grace and mercy God has for you and for me. And it's not too late to turn back. God is waiting with open arms to welcome us to his loving embrace. And there's a party about to start. A ring and a robe are waiting for us. A calf is being fattened to celebrate our return. To God be the glory and the honor and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot comprehend your love for us. And we thank you that you are a loving and gracious God. Thank you that your love is perfect, it never fails, and that nothing nothing can separate us. We thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrificial love. In Christ's name I pray, amen.